Thank you very much, Dave. I appreciate that. Uh, hi. Hi. You have no idea how excited I am to be here today. Uh, I spent uh, six years of my life at the Master's College, the first six years of the college existence. I'd uh, been a pastor at Grace Community Church with John for about six years prior to that, and when he was hoping and dreaming about the college, he asked me to be a part, and I said yes, and so it's just tremendous memories flood my mind as I come back here and hear those same three songs all over again. Thank you, Steve. It's true, those were the three that I only knew and could only lead. A note on dress code. Hi, good morning. Uh, just want you to know this is not an act of disrespect uh, to the dress code here. In fact, it was my job to uphold that for so many years. Um, my luggage didn't come in. I mean, it didn't come in. Uh, my, my handbag didn't come in and my carry-on thing that I checked didn't come in. So this is what I flew out here in and, and I want you to know I, my good buddy Kelly Bird loaned me clean socks, clean underwear, and a clean t-shirt. So it's not, it's not that bad, alright? But I am here in heart and in spirit even though I am uh, breaking dress code. It happens that way with me. I go places and I lose my luggage. Uh, I went to uh, Russia for nine days when I was here at the college to minister to a bunch of college students in Russia. And I packed my suitcase up and I got there and my luggage didn't come. In fact, it never did come. I saw it once in the entire trip, about the eighth day, just in time to get some gifts out for some people, close it back up and send it back on the plane. So I went nine days. I was in the Carpathian Mountains living in a tent. All I had was my briefcase and one pair of underwear that for some reason I stuck in my, in my briefcase. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. I was freezing. I was absolutely freezing in these mountains. And they had a rented sleeping bag. Now, you can imagine in Russia what a rented sleeping bag is like. The thing did not work so good. It zipped up to about right here. And I was in this tent. And the second night I broke down, I was so cold. You know, you lose 30% of your body heat out the top of your head. And I only had one thing to put on my head. You got it. I'm wearing my underwear to bed at night on my head, staying warm. <laughs> True story. Absolutely no way to take a bath. We're, we're taking our water out of the river, okay? And when you get up in the morning, you go river it in the morning. So there's no way I'm going to disrobe in the middle of everywhere and take a, shower, take a thing in the river there. So I stay in these exact same clothes all nine days. Oh, it's bad. When I got there, I thought that the Russian people had a body odor problem. Within two days, they all smelled great to me. There was no longer any barrier there. I'm on the plane trying to come home, and I look at my ticket. You know how you do, and you say, okay, row 32, seat C, and you're kind of looking down the road, finding out who you're going to sit with. And there's this poor, innocent little girl, about 23 years of age, reading her book. She's all curled up in her seat. And I stop about three rows away. I said, excuse me. She looks up. I said, I got bad news. I'm in the seat next to you. And she didn't understand because I was three rows away. I said, I've been in the Carpathian Mountains in Russia for nine days, no shower, and ma'am, I stink. <laughs> and she said, well, that's okay. You know, she's polite. And have a seat. It'll be okay. And I'm thinking, this lady doesn't know what she's saying. So I sit down next to her. And she... <laughs> She gives it one of those. And then, and then within a few minutes, this poor girl isn't kind of curled in her. She's like over, pressed against the window, and she's working her deal. After we took off, uh, I found a new place to sit, and she was forever thankful. 
I came home, gave my wife a big hug and said, that's the only hug you get till you've showered. So I went home, showered the first time, said go back in again the second time. I mean, I showered three times, took three days to get the stink off my body. How do we get onto this? Are we talking about spiritual things here or what? Um, the last thing that happened to us in a major way before we left California to go back and pastor a church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, it's called Blackhawk Baptist Church, was we had our, our last child. And uh, we had three girls, still do. And the fourth one we were thinking was going to be a guy because I come from three generations of girl, 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 then a boy. In other words, my grandfather had three girls, then my dad, then my dad had three girls, and then me. And I got three girls. I'm thinking the fourth one's a boy. We were all pumped up and revved, and it was a boy named Whitney. <laughs> it was a girl. Okay. So, so we're like, we're like dealing with this, right? We're like dealing with disappointment and thinking, you know, God isn't a cosmic genie who's obligated to fill all your hopes and dreams, and you can live obediently, and you can study the Bible, and you can commit yourself to Him. And it doesn't mean that He gives you everything you want. And we're kind of learning that lesson real big time on that one. And then I find out that Whitney is a thief. My youngest daughter, Whitney, she's now almost four. She is a thief, a robber, breaking and entering. She moves right into my life and steals my heart. I mean, it's gone. She's got me right here around the little pinky. I love her to death. I love all of them. But it's amazing how this last one was able to do that. Well, it was time to take permanent measures to make sure we didn't have any more kids because four's a lot. And I come home and I say to my wife, we're thinking about um, the guys on staff all kind of getting the same day and going down and taking permanent measures. You know what I'm saying? Now, not in the same room at the same time. Same doctor, same day. Same doctor, same day. All right. You know, kind of a male bonding thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll go down there and get that done. All right. So I, it's a scary thing. You guys just wait. All right. Your time is going to come. So I come home to my wife and I say, honey, you know, the guys we're thinking maybe next week. Uh, I know we've talked about this. Four is enough. And we're thinking uh, it, we're done. Right. And she, we talked about this before. And she said we were done. And I said we were done. But all of a sudden, she looks at me with that look in her eyes. She says, but I think, I think I want one more baby. Well, what am I going to say? No. <laughs> I said, sure. Sounds great. So. So uh, suddenly, she's with child again. And uh, I would like to introduce to you not only my wife, for whom I am just absolutely forever indebted for her love for me, but also for saying those last few words there, but I want one more baby. I'd also like to introduce to you the only child in my family who flies free on the airlines and therefore who is here, Robert, we could call him Prince, Prince Robert Russell. Would you all stand up over here? There they are. Oh my goodness. Look at that. <laughs> Thank you. That's so exciting. Thank you, Heidi. Heidi, thank you, thank you, thank you. Take your Bibles this morning, and uh, you were wondering if we were ever going to do that. And uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 11, just kind of to start this morning off. By the way, I just had a tremendous time this morning with uh, John and Pat. Uh, we went to their house for breakfast this morning. And I just want you to know how excited I am to know how excited John is uh, about the Master's College. I don't think I've ever seen him more involved and more excited and more optimistic and more thankful for what God is doing at the Master's College. 
And I just think, if you don't already know that, you ought to hear that from an outside source. I've known him for 12, 13 years. I've never seen him more excited about what God's doing here. And he mentioned not only that some good things were going on. I know you've had hard times financially, but I know he's encouraged uh, that some good things are happening financially. And then he said, you know, we have fewer students this year than we'd hoped, but we think, and he said the faculty think, that it may be the best quality group of students we've ever had here. And so while there are some financial difficulties and there's some light at the end of the tunnel on those, he looks at you and your hearts and the faculty and the, the administrative staff and what comes out of his heart is just one long sentence of gratitude and thanksgiving. So God bless you folks and we're praying for you. Matthew 11, verses 28 and 30. You follow along, if you will. The Lord is speaking here. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. I want to begin this morning by asking you to think about your own Christian walk with the Lord, maybe for the last week or two or three weeks. As the Lord talks about Christianity here, is this how it feels to you? Or do you feel weary and heavy laden? Is your Christian experience right now, and it changes with time, I know, you can be up and down at different points, but are you feeling weary and heavy laden, or do you genuinely feel the rest that He wants us to have? That His yoke is easy and His load is light. I'm afraid sometimes in our effort to please God, in our effort to grow, we begin to picture God almost as an angry taskmaster who's sitting up there in heaven keeping a very close account of the last seven or eight promises we might have broken to Him in the last week or two, the same besetting sins that we fall into, the same struggles that we have over and over and over again, and you almost feel like He's up there and the fist is ready to fly. And God, we imagine Him saying, look, I've had it with you. I'm just tired of your failures. I'm tired of your lack of commitment. I'm tired of your inability to get through some of these issues. And I'm just about ready to just kind of nail you. I don't know if you feel that way today. I know oftentimes in my Christian life I can think about God in that way. The Lord talked to the Pharisees later in the book of Matthew and said, You tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders. He's talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And what they were doing to the people in their spiritual care was they were taking heavy loads, heavy spiritual loads. And they weren't really spiritual. It was legalism. It was all the expectations outside the Word of God. And they were laying them on top of people's shoulders. And the imagery is they were, they were kind of hunched over trying to carry the weight of religion on their shoulders. And the Lord just rebuked those guys and said, that's not what it's about with me. That's not what it's about with me. Romans 5 says we're justified by faith and we are at peace with God. The account has been settled. It's over. I want to try to lift some of the load this morning if I can. And if you'll work with me and think with me a little bit, maybe we can try to refocus God again for who He is. A gracious, loving, forgiving, patient, understanding marvelous, benevolent Father in heaven who cares for you and has your very best interest at heart. When my family goes out to breakfast, like we did the other day, we dropped some friends off 
at the airport on an early Saturday morning, and all, all, all of us were loaded up in the Suburban. We have one of those Suburbans, and so that we can fit all of our family. And uh, we were pulling into McDonald's, and, and then we all kind of pile out, and we roll across the parking lot and in the front door, and I knew I had blown it. <laughs> because typically, I start working on everybody's orders four or five miles down the road. I say to the girls, now, girls, you got to, you know, women's prerogative, change their mind, right? So they get up there to the cash register, the people taking the order, and they want to say, well, I'm not sure if I want the Big Mac or the Happy Meal or the, or the Chicken McNuggets and what kind of sauce. And it can take like a half an hour sometimes for my family to order. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to get angry. I'm going to become impatient with my family. And I've got to really try hard now because I didn't prepare them right to be patient with them at the counter. Then we, 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 we kind of round the bin and we come around and I see who's going to be helping us. I think, oh my goodness, now we're really in trouble. McDonald's is in the practice of hiring special people, handicapped people. And normally those people are assigned to cleaning the facilities. But in this case, the individual is going to be handling our order. And I could tell he was a special person. Because his hat didn't quite fit right, his skull wasn't formed properly, and his eyes were a little buggy, and his, his jaw and his teeth were kind of out of alignment, he held his hand kind of funny, and there was a look in his eye that, that indicated to me he was, he was a special employee of McDonald's. And I love them for doing that, by the way. This isn't a thing on him. But in my heart, I'm going, this is going to be tough. <laughs> this isn't going to go so good. You know what? I was so wrong. This guy gave us his 100% attention as each one of my little girls came up and ordered and, and tried to articulate what they wanted. And they're looking at the board and they're asking mom questions and they're looking at me and the frown on my face like, hurry up and order. And this guy is right here, right in their face, listening completely to what they say. This guy was very well trained. When they placed the order, he knew exactly which button to push on that little screen that they pushed. Much in contrast to his neighbor worker, uh, a person who wasn't specially handicapped, the person who was middle-aged and should have known exactly what she was doing. She got so frustrated with her customer that she almost bit her manager's head off because she didn't know which breakfast item to push. And I'm looking at the contrast. This guy was remarkably patient. We did have a lot of change orders. And never once did I sense in his mind, in his eyes, in the expression in his face, did I ever sense that it bothered him. He was just happy to listen and happy to make the changes as they came across. I noticed also he was remarkably skillful because after he had all of our order properly placed in his computer, he then had to negotiate all the people that were cutting and weaving and wobbing as they went back to pick up the orders. And he got to each place, he got exactly what he needed, he bumped into no one, he brought it back, put it on the tray, and the whole thing was done with an incredible amount of skill. And then this is what took me over the edge. He's done with all that. And he looks at me with all sincerity and says, is there anything else I could do to help you this morning? And he meant it. It wasn't like, could I get you to buy something else? You know, that's a line that salesmen learn to try to get you to think, oh yeah, I'll take this and this. He was just honest in his heart saying, is there anything else I could get for you? Well, he stuck with me. I was kind of standing there dumbfounded and, and I don't know what to say. I just said, you know what? You've just been wonderful. Thank you very much for handling my family this way. Went away and sat there breakfast, and I'm running over it in my mind, and we finally get in the car, and I still can't get this guy out of my head. And I say to Heidi, that was an incredible experience for me. And she's kind of like wondering, hello, 
You know, are you okay? I said, you know, I wish I could go back to that guy. And if I did, I'd tell him two things. I'd say, number one, you are the best waiter I ever had. And I could say that from my whole heart. And like you, I've eaten at some pretty nice places in my time. But I could say without any shadow of a doubt, you are the best waiter I've ever had in my life. And if I could pick any waiter to care for my needs, I'd pick you. And the second thing I wanted to say to him was, thank you for reminding me. Thank you for reminding me of the two most important things that God is looking for in my life. This guy showed me and reminded me what the Word of God had taught me and I had forgotten the two most important things that God wants out of me. You know what they are? He wants me to serve Him with my whole heart. And He wants me to be faithful with the abilities that He's given me. That's it. What God really is evaluating me on What God is really looking for in my life, the penetrating gaze of God is searching my life for just two things. Just this simple. That I'm serving Him with my whole heart and that I'm trying to be faithful with the gifts, the talents, the abilities that He's given me. And I want to talk about those two things with you this morning. And I think as you listen to this and as you let it sink into your heart, you're going to feel some weight come off your shoulders. At least that's my prayer for you. Don't turn there. Second Chronicles 16.9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that they may stri- strongly support those whose heart is completely His. God doesn't have eyes. God is using an anthropomorphic term. He's saying, if I did have eyes, here's where they'd be going. Here's what they'd be looking for. They're going to search all the way through the heavens and the earth and they're going to look for the people whose heart is completely mine. Proverbs 4.23 Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 23.7 For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. When you think of a guy with a heart after God in the Old Testament, who is it? David. David is the guy that gets lifted up throughout all the annals of history as having been the guy who had a whole heart for God. But sometimes I get confused by that because if you think with me for a minute about David's life, it was far from what? Perfect! The guy was an adulterer. The guy should have been out in battle, but he walks around the roof of his palace, looks over, and there she is, little Miss Beautiful. He invites her over. They have an adulterous affair. He impregnates her. This is the guy in the Old Testament that's lifted up as having a whole heart after God. And then when she's pregnant and he can't cover it up, remember he brings Uriah back and he says, hey, go down there and spend some time with your wife. And he sleeps on the doorstep of the king because his comrades are in battle and he would never consider going to bed with his wife when his buddies are suffering. And, and just maybe, the Bible doesn't say this, but just maybe he kind of knew what was going on. Rumors traveled. So you remember, King David sent him back with his own death warrant. He handed it to the captain of the guard. The guard put him in the front of battle, pulled it back, and he died. So... David is not only an adulterer, but he's a murderer. What is it about his heart that leads God to say, here's a man with a whole heart? I want to give you four or five references today that I think will describe that for you. It's no surprise to me that the book in the Old Testament that says most about the feelings, most about the heart, most about the emotions of life is 
is this book called the Psalms. Do you know who wrote 75 out of the 150 of them? David. I want to introduce you to a couple of characteristics of David's heart today that I think reveal him as a man after God's own heart. If you can't follow me, just jot these references down. My hope is that you will, and that when you're struggling with your heart, when you're struggling with your heart, and you know it's not in line with God, and you want to change it, that you'll turn to these passages and say, oh, this is what it means to have a heart after God. Psalm 38. Psalm 38 reveals a fundamental aspect of David's heart. Verses 1 and following. He says, O oh Lord, Psalm 38, 1, Rebuke me not in thy wrath, and chasten me not in thy burning anger, for thine arrows have sunk deep into me, and thy hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head, and as a heavy burden they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over greatly and bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am numbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Quality number one of an individual who has a heart after God, they have a sensitive and a contrite heart. It's not that David never sinned. That's not what made him a man after God's own heart. It's that when he did sin, it convicted and pierced his heart to the point of confession. You hear him here. He's bent over. He can't carry the weight of it. His iniquities are gone over his head. He's burdened so much, they weigh too much. His wounds have grown foul and they fester. He's talking about the inside groanings of his heart and his inner life. The inner man is just sickened by his sin. Isn't that great? You want to have a heart after God. It's not that you have to be perfect. It's that when you sin, you're broken over your sin. And when the Spirit of God comes into your life and begins to convict you, you welcome the Spirit of God. And when you're in chapel and somebody's speaking to you about an issue that you're struggling with, you don't tune out. You tune in and you say, I know I'm a failure. I know I sin. I know I've done it before. But God, I want you to convict me again. <laughs> That's so liberating. That's so freeing. What God is looking for in my heart is confession and sensitivity to my own sin. Come with me to Psalm 39. Turn the page for just a second. Let me show you another aspect of David's heart. And I just pulled a few out. I challenge you to read all the Psalms and learn about his heart. We'll start in verse 4. Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in thy sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in thee. You know what I see here? A humble heart. Listen to him. He is talking the language of a humble heart. He says, make me know the end. Make me know the extent of my days. Make me know how transient I am. Make me know that I'm like a handbreadth. I'm like vapor that appears on a cold morning. And there I am, formed in the coolness. And then it takes over and the vapor disappears and I'm gone. I've come, I've lived, and I've left, and it's all over. 
I'm a mere breath, he says at the end of verse 5. I'm a phantom. I don't even exist. People who amass riches, they don't even know who's going to gather them, meaning the, the temporalness of life. And what do I wait for in verse 7? Who do I have my hope fixed on? It's none other than you. Now keep in mind, folks, that David was no insignificant individual. You know your Old Testament well enough to know he was one of the greatest warriors in one of the greatest warring nations of the Old Testament. David was phenomenally skilled as a warrior, as a statistician, uh, as, a, as a great man of war. He was a phenomenal musician. He had incredible ability with the harp. Of all the people in the kingdom that the king knew about, King Saul, when he was struggling with his inner spirit and he wanted to be comforted, he called the one musician who could not just play the instrument, but interpret the instrument and bring it alive and soothe his soul. The Kenny G of yesteryear. The guy's phenomenal on this harp. He was very handsome, very gifted physically in his appearance. And of course, there's this little thing of his being king. You see, you're not talking about somebody who has a poor self-image or who is humble because they lack the gifts. He had all the gifts. He had all the positions of power. He had all the prominence. But in his heart, he knew he was nothing but a breath. He was insignificant. He added up to nothing. He was a vapor, a breath that came and left. That what was really going on inside of his heart. If I'm ever going to do anything significant for you, God, it will be because you have done it through me. A heart of absolute humility. Come with me over to Psalm 16. Let me show you another part of his heart. Psalm 16. David had a grateful heart. David's heart was not only sensitive to sin, it was not only humble as he estimated his own worth and value to God, but he was grateful. Psalm 16, 5. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and my cup. Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Man, a grateful heart. You know what he's saying there? When he says the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places and you are my inheritance, he's talking, a, it's a throwback to when the 12 tribes came into the land of Israel for the first time under Joshua's leadership and it was going to be decided which tribe would get which land. And obviously some land was better than others. And some tribes would get a larger portion of land than others. And it would be for, their, for them forever. That was their allotment. That was their portion in life. And he is saying not to complain about it, not to be grumbling about it. He just says, I am thankful for what you have given me. The boundaries of my life, the, the, the things you have given me to do, the person that I am, I am genuinely grateful for it. what He has brought into your life. Your parents, their struggles, your past, and all that might have happened there, knowing that God can cause all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. 
So he had a sensitive heart to his sin. He had a humble heart. He had a grateful heart. Come over a few pages to Psalm 19. Let me show you another aspect of his heart. Psalm 19, we could begin in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Now here we go, verse 10. Here's his heart. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, I've got a hungry heart for the truth of God's Word in my life. I am starving, as it were, and I value the content of God's Word and its application to my life as more important to me than gold, as more important to me than the most precious commodity, and they are sweeter to me than the finest delicacies of food ever presented to any taste bud. Well, I could give you others. You might jot these down for later. I'm going to jump over some for the sake of time this morning. He reveals himself to have a humble heart, In Psalm 39, verses 4 and following, he reveals himself to have a thirsty heart. In Psalm 63, remember as the deer pants for the water, and oh God, my soul pants for thee. But let me take you to one last psalm that may help us the most in all of this. Psalm 139. And please turn there. Psalm 139. I want you to see this with your own eyes, and I don't want you to ever forget it. And once again, this just speaks to us, the gracious, compassionate God that we have. You say, before we read these verses, you say to me, oh, that's great. I'd love to have a contrite heart, but I don't. I'm not broken over my sin. As a matter of fact, I'm rather calcified in it. I'm rather hardened by it. And I, and I know I ought to repent, but I don't want to. And you say to me, and I know I ought to have a dependent heart. And I ought to just know that God is going to work through me. And if anything of value comes in my life, it's because of God. But but to tell you the truth, for me, it's just grit and grime. And I eke out my existence day by day, and I feel like it's just me. And you say, I know I ought to have a hungry heart. But I'm sick of learning about God. And I'm sick about learning the Bible. And I'm tired of the whole thing. And I don't prize spiritual truth as more important to me than gold and sweeter to my lips than honey. This psalm is for you. And this psalm is for me when I feel like that, which sometimes is more often than I would wish to admit. Psalm 139, verse 23. He cries out from his heart, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What he's saying is, Look at my heart. And know that the condition of my heart isn't right. I'm inviting you to know that I'm not repentant of my sin. And I don't desire wisdom. And I'm not dependent. But if you'll just admit that much to Him, that's all I'm saying. That's all the Bible's saying. Even if your heart is sick and corroded and corrupt at that very moment, as you're struggling with some of the worst sin in your life, if you'll just acknowledge it to Him and say, I don't even feel repentant, but oh God, please search my heart. And know my thoughts. 
See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You suddenly are on the path to having a right heart. And God is in the business of picking people like this up. God is in the business of people, of helping people who say, I know I ought to help myself and I can't. I know I fall short. And so God, I just admit it to you and please help me in your way, in your timing. You say, I thought God wanted obedience. What do you mean all God wants is my heart? I thought God wanted obedience. Well, that's true. What's the Bible say? If you love me, you will what? You'll keep my commandments. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Matthew 12. Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew 9. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Matthew 15. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murderers, adulterers, fornicators, thefts, false witnesses, and slanders. My friend, know this. When your heart is right with God, the rest of your life takes care of itself. Focus on your heart. Pray to God for your heart. No, it's not merely a matter of externals. It's not merely a matter of performing along some ritualistic line of quiet times and study times and Bible studies and service projects and all the stuff that goes on. Principally, your Christianity is fundamentally a matter of having a heart for God. Everything else takes care of itself. What this is telling me this morning is that God is carefully searching the faculty and the staff and the students of the Master's College. What he's looking for are people who have hearts for him. The Marines appeal to our exclusivity and say, the Marines are looking for a few good men. God comes to you today in the form of his prophet and says, God is looking for a few good hearts. I pray you'll respond. What's the second thing that I want? And by the way, how's your voice? It's all right. Thank you. <coughs> I don't know where it went. I've had, I guess, a cold and hardly knew it, but it's going fast. I hope we can get through the rest of chapel. I want to talk to you about the second thing that God wants from you, and that's faithfulness. Come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 for just a touchstone. 1 Corinthians 4. And just look at verse 2. It says there, 1 Corinthians 4, 2, In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy, Trustworthy or faithful. It's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. We don't have time to go there this morning, but you might jot down Matthew 25 as another place to look. There's the parable of the three servants. It's one of my favorite parables in all the Bible because there is a master there who's going to leave on a trip and he gives one servant five talents. He gives one, I think it's two talents, and the other one talent. He says, I'm going to go away. When I come back, I'd like to know how you did with what I gave you. The master goes away, comes back after a period of time, and the first servant who was given five talents comes back to his master and says, see, you had given me five, and I have five more. I was faithful. And the master, who is playing the role of our Lord, looks at him and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But that's not the part I like part I like about this parable is that the next guy comes. He didn't get five. His name isn't John MacArthur. His name isn't Chuck Swindoll. 
He's just normal, average, ordinary human folk like you and me. He just got two talents. And when the master returns, the guy with only two talents comes up to the master and says, you gave me two and I have two. And guess what the master says? The exact same thing he said to the guy he'd given five to. He says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. God isn't holding us accountable to change the world. God isn't holding us accountable to live up to somebody else's standard. All God wants from us is that we'll be faithful to employ the talents that he's given us. And if it's only two, that's okay. You do well with your two. He looks at you and gives you the same commendation he's going to give MacArthur and Swindoll and some of the other great people. To me, that's unbelievably liberating. It isn't how much you know. It isn't how gifted you are. It isn't how many accomplishments you have achieved. It isn't the size of your bank account. It isn't how clean your house is or your dorm room. It isn't how many promotions you've gotten. It isn't that you're on the straight A roll. It isn't that you're popular. It isn't that you're a great athlete. It isn't that you're a great musician. It isn't that you're a great anything. It's did you do with what God gave you your very best. And in the eyes of God, everything takes care of itself. And he says to you, well done, <laughs> well done. Thou good and faithful servant. Thank you, Dave. <clears throat> Here's a rule. You ready? Spiritual truth. Write this down. There's absolutely no relationship between giftedness and spirituality. There's absolutely no relationship between giftedness and spirituality. I want to prove that for you. Samson was a remarkably gifted individual, strongest guy everywhere. Where did he get his strength? From God. He was gifted by God. Was he spiritual? Eh, thanks for playing. No way. He was anything but spiritual. King Saul, handsome, gifted, tall, bright, Given positions of power as king, was he gifted? Yes. Was he spiritual? Not on your life. He got demoted and dethroned and defrocked because of his lack of spirituality. It wasn't that he had, didn't have the looks. It wasn't that he didn't have the ability. It wasn't that he wasn't smart enough. It wasn't any of that stuff called his giftedness. It was the lack of his heart for God and his faithfulness to God's calling in his life. Here's one for you. Think about this. Judas. Judas was unbelievably gifted. He was there in Matthew 10 when the Lord commissioned them all to go out and perform the miracles and raise the dead and heal the sick and deal with the lepers. I mean, he got the same commissioning everybody else did. Was he spiritual? Gifted, yes. Spiritual, he wasn't even saved. This guy wasn't even born again. There is no relationship. There is no relationship between giftedness and spirituality. All God is looking for out of you and in your life is that you are faithful with what He has given you. You know what I like about this? You know this guy we're talking about back at McDonald's in Fort Wayne, Indiana? He could go and we could get him onto the football team at Notre Dame. And Lou Holtz could say to this guy, Hey, great job! You're, you're out here practicing. You're doing it with your whole heart. 
and you're performing at the very best level you could ever possibly perform given your physical and mental limitations, but you're off the team, right? That's what happens to this kid. We get him a full-ride scholarship at Harvard Law School, and the dean of the school comes up to him and says, man, you're doing great. You're studying 100%. You're here with your whole heart. And you know what? Given your mental IQ, you're really performing up to your ability, but you're out of the law school. There's no room for you here. We could take him to one of the employers in the city of Fort Wayne. We could get him a job. And within weeks, that employer might come to him and say, you know something, I'm really proud of you because you're serving here with your whole heart and you're completely faithful with the abilities that we've been giving you. But look, computers aren't your thing and you're fired. Let me tell you something. God will never say that to you. God will never say that to you. He will never say that to you. He will never say, you know what, I'm proud of you. You're serving me with your whole heart and you're being faithful with the abilities that I've given you, but. He'll never say, but. He'll just say, and I love you. And I'm thankful for you. And I'm proud of you. And I'm with you. And I'm going to energize the efforts of your life to be effective for the cause of Christ. Last month I was I was out at the uh, college retreat. Some of you might have been there uh, for Grace Community Church College Department with Scott out of Venice, and we were up at Mandalay Bay in Oxnard and having a wonderful time. <clears throat> and uh, that particular Sunday morning, uh, John was supposed to have been in Russia, John MacArthur, and he couldn't go. And so uh, he had some free time on his hands, and he came up, and we had breakfast together. And he brought the pride and joy of his life. I'm sure you know about this individual. Little Johnny Jr. You know who little, you all seen little Johnny Jr.? Incredible little Johnny Jr.? It's making noise. Quiet. Shh. So he brings little Johnny Jr. up in his black little pants and his white little shirt with his suspenders and his bow tie and his little blonde hair slicked over with enough grease, you know, to make the car run. And he's just kid, he's just bright, and he's alive. And we're sitting there at breakfast, and he's working on his French toast, and John's cutting it up for him, and he's spilling it, and John's helping him get the plate in there and putting the napkin in. And I'm looking at John MacArthur. I'd never seen him in this role before, you know. It was kind of exciting. And uh, afterwards, we go outside, and there's this big pool area, and there are these fake waterfalls and these fake rock configurations that are built. And little Johnny, he says, Grandpa, he says, Grandpa, I want to get up on top. I want to get up on top. I want to see what's on top. And so John breaks off our conversation, takes his little grandson over, and lifts him up on top. And it's kind of precarious because it's just about out of John MacArthur's reach. But little Johnny gets up there, and he's running all around. He's checking it out. He's having a great time. But it's time for him to get down now. And so uh, John MacArthur Sr. sees that and goes over and reaches his hand up and takes just one hand on little Johnny's hand. And they're negotiating this little path. And they're coming down, and everything's going fine. And they get just to the bottom, and little Johnny falls. You know, now, big Johnny has a hole in little Johnny, so little Johnny doesn't get hurt, but there's a definite kaboom. And I'm watching all this. What do you think John MacArthur did? I'll tell you what he did. He picked the kid up and said, what an idiot, and kicked him in the butt. And he... Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what he did, right? Wrong. Wrong. Yeah, you're laughing just thinking about it. Boom. Stupid grandkid. Get a clue. Gee, embarrass me here. No, you know, he does, he does this, he does this. He's like, he's like, he's like, he's there. He picks him up. Dusts him off. Cleans him up. Fixes the suspender, straightens the tie. Hair is fine. Takes him by the hand. And they go on together. Ah. You want to know what God does when you fall down? He picks you up and he kicks you in the butt and says, I'm sick of you. No. He has never done that to you once. And he never will do it to you. He picks you up. He says, I love you more than anything in the world. And he dusts you off. He fixes your suspenders. He tightens your tie. He fixes your hair and he puts his hand back down there. He takes and says, come on, let's go. And he knows before he takes your hand again that you're going to fall. And then you're going to fall. And you're going to fall because you're just a little kid. But he loves you so much. He bought you in the person of Jesus Christ, his own son. And he's prepared for your failures. He's prepared for you to fall down and get dirty and he's ready to dust you off. And all he's asking is in the process, will you just look at him and say, God, I want to love you with my whole heart. And even if I don't at that moment, then just search it and lead me in the way everlasting. You're the sovereign one. Orchestrate the events of my life so that again there will be a day when I do love you as I ought to. And all I can ask of you, God, is allow me to be faithful. I don't want to live to somebody else's standard. I don't want to be somebody I'm not. I am what I am, and I just want to do with my life what pleases you. Because I'm longing to hear you say at the end of it all, well done. Well done. Let's stand. I do know one other song, <clears throat> and maybe we could sing it as a closing prayer. Sing with me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We've been there. When we've been there in thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we to sing. God bless you. Thanks for coming.